So this is the part of the evening where we get to hear from God's Word. And if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, um, we've been looking at uh, a series that we're calling Real Jesus. Um, Because what we want to do is we want to actually go to the Bible and we want to see what Jesus actually says about himself. Um, There are a lot of different ideas in our world and in our culture about who Jesus is. And what we want to do in this series is we want to go and look at exactly who Jesus says he is in his own words. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the I am statements that are found mostly in the Gospel of John. And uh, if you remember, uh, anyone remember what the one was from the first week? Stephen said something, yeah. I'm the bread of life. Okay, yeah, right. Anyone remember the one we did last week? I'm the light of the world, Tova. Man, if this were Jeopardy, you'd have like $1,000 right now. Great. Tonight, we're going to look at the, number, the third one, which is a statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 10. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, go to John chapter 10. And in uh, tonight's I Am statement, Jesus is going to say that he is the door. He is the door. What does that mean? That's what we're going to look at. So uh, I'm going to read from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. So uh, again, yeah, just if you've got a Bible on your phone or an actual, you know, a a real print Bible, you know, they still make those, believe it or not. Uh, Just (laughs) grab that. And I'm going to read from uh, John chapter 10, verse 10 verses. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Okay, so what is this about? What is this about? This passage comes after John chapter 9. Believe it or not, chapter 10 comes after chapter 9. And uh, if you read chapter 9, what you find out is that chapter 9 is all about this, this time when Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. And this, this miracle that Jesus performs, it leads him into this major confrontation with the Pharisees uh, who numbered among the, some of the Jewish leaders. And, and the Pharisees, um, as well as other leaders among the Jews, like the Sadducees, um, they were, they were influential, they were powerful, um, and, and what happens when the man who's healed of his blindness comes before the Pharisees is they hurl abuse at him. Um, they're upset that Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, and so they kind of, you know, they sort of shoot the messenger in a sense, like it's not the man who healed himself, it's Jesus, they're mad at Jesus, but they kind of take it out on this guy. And so if you read that chapter, you find out about, uh, about that particular story, and, and the bottom line is by the time you get to the end of the chapter, what you realize is that although the Pharisees are claiming to be the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, 
In reality, they show themselves to be more concerned with their own gain rather than caring for the people they're called to serve. So that's the context, and you actually have to understand that context to understand why Jesus says what he says in chapter 10. Because in the Old Testament, uh, political leaders, spiritual leaders, people like kings or, or maybe priests, were called, where they were, they were frequently compared to shepherds. And if you wanted to, to read some of those places in the Old Testament where that comparison is made, you could go to passages like Isaiah 56, uh, Jeremiah 23, or Jeremiah 25, Ezekiel 34, Zechariah chapter 11, for all you note-takers out there. <laughs> and so in chapter 10, Jesus tells a parable about what a good shepherd is supposed to do. What does the ideal shepherd or what does the ideal leader really look like? And he's wanting to contrast that kind of leader with the kinds of, of the leaders that the Pharisees are. And so he begins by telling a little parable in the first five verses about sort of the basics of shepherds and sheep. It's kind of like sheep herding 101, okay? So let's just read those one more time, the first five verses. So now that you know what this is, just okay, kind of think, okay, sheep herding 101. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Makes sense. Uh, or at least it will make sense. Uh, the man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. So this is about sheep and shepherds. So, you know, it's pretty basic. It says that shepherds have sheep, and sheep have a sheep pen. So, you know, a sheep pen back in that day would have just been like a little stone enclosure that would have sort of walled in the sheep so that way they could be kept safe, you know, where they'd sleep at night. And that sheep pen has a gate. There's only one way in, there's only one way out. It's the gate. And when the sheep would go out to find food, uh, to find pasture, or when they'd come in for the night to find shelter, they would go through the gate. And then there was a watchman by the gate, and the watchman's job was to, to guard the sheep and to prevent any, like a wolf or someone from coming in to harm the sheep. But then there also, in that day, would have been thieves and robbers. Sheep were a little bit like currency, you know, it would be a little bit like robbing a bank, robbing a sheep pen, would be basically kind of taking uh, kind of the, the currency or the, the, the riches of that day, back when it was all kind of in, in livestock. And so, one way that you could identify who a thief and a robber was, was that unlike the shepherd, they wouldn't go through the gate. Uh, they were afraid of, of the watchman, and so they would get at the sheep by climbing over the wall. And a little bit later in this chapter, Jesus is going to call himself the good shepherd. He's saying, I'm the ideal shepherd, I'm the, 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 what a, a model leader looks like. And so when Jesus says that the shepherd doesn't climb over into the, into the sheepfold, he actually goes in through the gate, one of the things that that means is that Jesus came by the gate in the sense that he came in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies that have been made about him. You know, he didn't just kind of come along and say, hey, I've decided to be the Messiah, I've decided to be this, this, this Savior of the world. He actually came in fulfillment of all of these prophecies. You know, it says that he would come gentle, riding on a donkey. That's what happened when he came into Jerusalem. Um, it says that um, there are prophecies about uh, the, the, the way in which um, he would heal people. It says in Isaiah 35, talks about the blind being healed, the deaf being healed. And it's easy to hear those things and think, well, you know, maybe Jesus just read those prophecies and then he just kind of lived his life and kind of fulfilled them all. Okay, you know, riding on a donkey, check. Um, 
I'm not quite sure how he would have just been able to snap his fingers and heal people unless he'd actually been the Messiah. But maybe he, he thought he could trick people. So maybe he just kind of read the prophecies and then just fulfilled them himself. Uh, but one of the problems there is that Jesus actually had, there were a lot of prophecies made about him that were totally beyond his control. So there were prophecies in the Old Testament about where Jesus would be born. He couldn't control that. Uh, there were prophecies about the exact way in which he would die. Um, it says he was pierced for our transgressions, just as he was pierced on the cross with the nails that bound him there. Um, he it gives prophecies about the, the way in which he would be buried. You know, he was dead. He couldn't have jury-rigged that. So, Jesus is the one who didn't just climb over into the sheepfold, but he came by the gate of all of these Old Testament prophecies. <clears throat> so, a um, little bit of sheep herding 101 here. And it says in verse 6 that when Jesus gives them this parable, the Pharisees don't get it. Um, which I'm kind of thankful for because a lot of times when I read the Bible, there are things that I don't fully understand the first time either. And so Jesus is very gracious, and he goes on, and he explains a little bit more of what he's trying to say. So in verse 7, he, he goes on to show what this is all about, and he, he makes a statement about himself. And in verse 7, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. So he's saying that, I didn't just come through the gate. I actually am the gate. <laughs> Seems a little funny, but that's, that, that's what he says here. And he's saying that, you know, this is not just the gate that you go through uh, to find food like the sheep or to find shelter like the sheep. But he says in verse 9, anyone who goes through me will be saved. Anyone who goes through me will be saved. He will go in, uh, he will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, here's the question. What does it mean for Jesus to be the gate, or some translations say the door of salvation? What does it mean for Jesus to be the door of salvation? Well, uh, think about the parable. If, if, if on a regular basis, those sheep have to pass through the door so that they can, have, they can find food. If they don't go through the door, then they're literally going to die. Or, you know, at nighttime... If the sheep are outside the sheepfold, they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to being preyed on by wild animals. Uh, if they don't go through the door, they're going to lose their life. And so when Jesus says that he is the door, what he's saying is that he is the way to life. And that doesn't just mean physical life. If you look at verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Um, in Greek, that's the language the, the New Testament was originally written in. There are different words for life. There's the word bios, which is where we get our English word biology from. And the word bios just means biological life. But that's not the word Jesus uses here. Uh, the word that Jesus uses here is the word zoe, which is a word that means spiritual life. So what he's saying is that I've come that you may have not just existence, not just existence, but life, like good, rich, full, overflowing, overwhelming life that actually doesn't just come from the outside of you by like, you know, biological life comes from the outside of you, like all the food you have to eat just to kind of stay alive. He's talking about a kind of life that is so deep and so full of love and joy and peace that it literally comes from the inside out, the inside out. Um, back in 1977, there was, a, there was a British BBC television series 
um, that was made. That in, in this series, they, they had a number of different episodes that explored the different major world religions. So Christianity and Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and all these different religions. And it was, it was a, received a lot of recognition and received, some, received an award. <clears throat> and the name of this documentary was called The Long Search. The Long Search. And I just think that's such an intriguing name for a documentary about all the different world religions because what are all the world religions trying to get at? They're, they're searching for this kind of life that Jesus is talking about. Where is it that that kind of life can truly be found? And Jesus says that that kind of life is found through me. I am the door into that kind of life. And there's actually another sense in which Jesus is the door to salvation. Um, one of the things about a sheepfold, as we've kind of seen from, from the parable, is that the sheepfold was a place of protection and safety um, from predators that would try to devour the sheep. And elsewhere in the Bible, it teaches that to be in Christ, to come to Jesus as the door of salvation, is to enter <clears throat> into safety and security. And it's safety and security from at least three things, three things, one past, one present, and one future. One past, one present, and one future. So what are those three things? Well, first of all, <clears throat> there's, there's something that we're protected from that happened in, the, in, in sort of a past tense sense, and that is the penalty for our sin, the penalty for our sin. So in Isaiah 53, which is a famous chapter in the Old Testament, it's another passage about sheep. And, and it says this, it says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And this is true to life. Like sheep are notoriously stupid and they'll just wander off. Um, I heard a story once about uh, a bunch of sheep that got stuck up on a cliff somewhere in England. And, you know, sheep follow each other. Well, one of the sheep, unfortunately, kind of fell off this cliff and plummeted to its death. And literally all the other sheep just like followed the first sheep and then they plummeted to their deaths. And so, that the, you know, there's like a gigantic pile of just like big white dead fluff at the bottom of this big cliff. Sheep are very stupid. And so when the Bible compares us to sheep, it's, it's a very uh, well-meaning but, but kind of like, you know, uh, you know, sidewinding spiritual insult. And it's saying, look, like if we were the ones left in charge of running our own lives, like we would, we would shipwreck ourselves just like those sheep. And so the Bible is saying that we all like sheep have gone astray, we've turned to our own way, but then the verse ends, the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So, so the verse is saying that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in the Bible, sin is not just breaking rules or being bad. Um, sin goes actually a whole lot deeper. It's a lot more powerful than that. Um, sin is the ingrained habit that we seem to have for making a wreck of our lives and of our relationships. Um, you know, sin can be like an addiction. You know, you can be addicted to substances, but you can also be addicted uh, to your own anger or to lust or to holding grudges or to putting other people down to benefit yourself. Um, sin is a little bit like that. It's like almost something that, that you're addicted to. It's like a power that you can't break free from that holds us in bondage to the worst parts of ourselves. And all that means is that we never, on our own, can seem to become the people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness that we all know that we should be. Now, if you were a parent, and if you saw someone murder your son or someone rape your daughter, 
It would be wrong if, as a parent, you reacted to that with just some kind of indifference. Instead, the response of a loving parent would actually be a, a kind of indignation. It would be a kind of righteous anger at what had been done to your children. And God is a perfect father. And when he sees the way that we harm and use and abuse other people, his loving response is anger toward our sin. And as a just God, it actually would be right for him to punish us for what we've done. But, but God's love is just so deep and so profound that he chose to step into this world in the person of his son and to bear the consequences of our sin for us. He chose to bear the punishment that we deserve so that we wouldn't have to bear it ourselves. And that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. On the cross, that was God in the person of Jesus dying in our place, substituting himself for us. You know, it's a little bit like um, the, the last Harry Potter book. Um, these books have been out for so long that I'm going to spoil it, and I know that that's okay because you know, you've all had your chance to read it. But the climactic scene of the last book is when Harry realizes that the only way that he can save his friends is if he allows himself to be killed by Voldemort. Remember that scene? I remember actually when I saw that movie in theaters, I'd read the book a long time ago, but when I saw it in theaters, I totally forgot that Harry had to die. And it just like was so like jarring that like even like, you know, half hour after seeing the movie, I was still kind of like, oh, that was intense. But that, that's the climactic scene of the movie when Harry realizes I have to lay down my life in order to save my friends. And in John 15, verse 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. And so the message of the cross is that you are deeply, deeply loved. You're loved by the God who made the universe. And in fact, he loved you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for you. And that means that if God laid down his life for us, if he took that penalty then we can know forgiveness. It's as though God has taken a record of all the things that you've ever done, all the things that you're guilty of, all the things that you feel ashamed of. If those things were up on a chalkboard, forgiveness in Jesus means that God has erased all of those things and they're no longer a part of our record. And so for Jesus uh, to be the door of salvation, first of all means that he has given us safety from the penalty of sin. Number one, but then there's also not just sort of a past tense aspect of what Jesus already accomplished, but there's also a present tense aspect of what it means for Jesus to be the door. For Jesus to be the door of salvation means that he's given us safety from the power of sin. Uh, so in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus compares salvation to something so radical that it's like being born a second time. I mean, it's his way of saying that to go through the door of salvation, that's such a dramatic, profound thing that it's to be remade by God into a totally new person. So when someone goes through the door, God fills that person with the Holy Spirit, his personal presence. And that begins a process, sometimes a gradual process, sometimes a sudden process, of that person being refashioned into a person who looks like Jesus, a person of love, a person of joy, of peace, of patience, kindness goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All these things that characterized the most perfect man who's ever lived. And that's why in Jesus there is freedom from addiction. 
In Jesus, there is freedom from anxiety. In Jesus, there is freedom from depression. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't also clinical forms of those things. Those things are real. They exist. It doesn't just mean that we're never going to, to wrestle or struggle with those things again. But it does mean that Jesus can bring hope and freedom and sometimes even dramatic deliverance in all of those things. I don't know if you believe that about yourself. I don't know if you believe that about other people. But, but that is true in Jesus. He can set us free from those things. Because through what Jesus has done as the door of salvation, he's broken the present power of sin. We no longer have to live under its power. And then finally, there's a future tense aspect to salvation. For Jesus to be the door of salvation means that one day he's going to give us safety from the very presence of sin. Um, now, in our culture, we, it's not very fashionable to kind of think about or reflect on life after death. Um, that's kind of seen as a little weird or a little unnatural. Um, but the reason why the Bible affirms that there's life after death is, is not to be weird, not to be unnatural, but because Christians are people who believe, um, who have come to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. He really rose from the dead. And there are a lot of different uh, reasons that Christians believe that. There are a lot of um, historical evidences for that. There's actually one scholar of early Christianity <clears throat> who has written a multi-hundred page book on the evidence for the resurrection. And um, one of the things he says about it is that uh, he says, I've examined all the alternative explanations, ancient and modern, for the rise of the early Christian church. And I have to say that far and away the best historical explanation is that Jesus of Nazareth really did rise from the dead. Um, so here's a guy who's looked at the evidence. Here's his conclusion. That may not be yours tonight, but I would encourage you to look at the evidence and to come to your own conclusion. The point is that when Jesus went through death, he came out the other side in order to tell us that there is something on the other side of death. And when a person comes to Jesus and goes to, through Jesus as the door, on the other side of that is the promise of a future hope after death, of a remade, resurrected world in which nothing is broken and nothing is missing. Nothing is broken and nothing is missing. And the way that the Bible in the last book of Revelation describes that world is as a world where we'll know and see God face to face, and where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So do you see tonight that when Jesus says that he's come, that we may have life and have it to the full, he's not just talking about existence, he's talking about a kind of fullness of life that is deeper than anything that this world can offer us. That's what it means for Jesus to be the door of salvation. And just as we close, uh, I just want to kind of ask one final question tonight. And the question is, how actually can we really trust that all that has been said tonight, all that Jesus has said about himself, how can we trust that this is true? How can we trust that Jesus really is the door? Um, you know, if you think about that metaphor of a door, doors lead to things. So, you know, just maybe you've had this experience of where you're, you're, you're trying to, like, get somewhere and you get lost and you accidentally wind up walking into, like, some meeting or some, like, private place and everyone kind of looks at you as you walk in and they see you. You're all embarrassed, like, oh my gosh, I went through the wrong door. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't know if uh, anyone's made that mistake before, but <clears throat> doors lead to things. And just how awful would it be 
if Jesus weren't telling the truth, if we went through that door, put all the eggs in that basket, only to find out that there really wasn't something good on the other side. So how can we really trust that on the other side of the door that Jesus is offering us, that there really is all of the, the life that he's promised? Um, and that's such a huge question, especially in our pluralistic world today where there are so many different doors on offer. There's the doors of, of like worldly achievement, the doors of success and career and family. All those things are good, but, but to go through that door and to say, this is the door I'm going to go through rather than Jesus, well, you might be disappointed. Or there's also the doors of all the different world religions. You know, aren't they saying that, oh, look, this is the door. Buddhism is the door. Or Hinduism is the door. Islam is the door. How do we know that Jesus is truly the door? And the, the, the solution, the, the, the answer that I think Jesus gives us tonight is that the reason that we can trust him is because he didn't just, he, he didn't just uh, say he is the door, but he actually went through one of the most profound doors there is, which is the door of death. <laughs> he went through the door of death for us. Um, back in the, the 1950s to the 1970s, there was a guy named Jim Jones. Maybe some of you have heard of him before. Um, Jim Jones was a religious leader. Uh, Jesus was a religious leader. Jim Jones was a religious leader. And he founded um, uh, sort of what became a cult. And eventually this cult um, wound up moving their, their members to a little remote jungle commune in South America. And I think it was in 1978, the late 70s, uh, Jim Jones orchestrated a mass suicide where all of his followers and himself committed suicide. Now, now imagine if you were like one of the relatives of those people who had been in that cult. I mean, just how heartbreaking that here's like a family member that believed that this guy was the door. And they went through the door and it led to death. Jim Jones was not the true door. And the way that we know that Jesus is not just another Jim Jones is that he went through the door of death for our sake. You know, if Jesus is really God, then that means he didn't have to come from heaven to earth. You know, he didn't really have to lay down his life for us. He had every right to stay where he was and to not have to suffer on our behalf. But he chose, out of his great love for us, to come and to die for us. Um, Nicky Gumbel tells the story of something that happened during World War II about a guy um, who was in Auschwitz concentration camp named uh, Francis Gawanichek. And one day, there was um, uh, an alarm that went off at the, uh, at, the, at the camp because a man had tried to escape from Auschwitz. And as punishment, the Nazis took 10 men randomly selected from among the prisoners, and they said, we're going to take these 10 men, we're going to put them in a starvation bunker, and they're going to die as punishment um, in order to kind of teach all the rest of the prisoners a lesson. And as they were calling randomly the, the, the men that they were going to put into this bunker, one of the men was this man, Francis Gawanichek. And as he, his name was called, he, he said, oh, you know, have mercy on me. I have a wife and children. Please don't, please don't pick me. And at that moment, a man came forward <clears throat> whose name was Maximilian Kolbe. He says, hey, I'm a Catholic priest. I don't have a wife and children. I want to die instead of that man. And to everyone's astonishment, they agreed. And Maximilian Kolbe was put in the starvation bunker instead of Francis Gawanichek. And eventually, um, he died. Uh, he died in Francis Gawanichek's place. And once the war ended, um, Francis Gawanichek traveled around the world and, and made it his mission to tell the world about what Maximilian Kolbe had done for him. 
And actually, to this day, um, or at least when I looked last time, uh, on, on the Wikipedia page for Francis Galmanichek, you know what it says? You know, usually a Wikipedia page says something like, you know, uh, Kobe Bryant was one of the greatest U.S. basketball players. You know, it kind of gives all the, the achievements, all the amazing things they've done. Francis Galmanichek's Wikipedia page says, Francis Galmanichek was a Polish, I think, army sergeant whose life was saved by Maximilian Kolbe, who volunteered to die in his place. The number one thing that the internet says about this guy is that he was a man for whom someone else had died in his place. And man, you know, if I ever, like, like have a, like a tombstone, I want that to be what it says on there. Like, Michael Bouchersa was an American youth worker whose life was saved by Jesus Christ who volunteered to die in his place. And when you, like, take deep into the center of your existence the fact that the God of the universe died for you when he didn't have to, that's where we can truly come to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. He's not out to deceive us. He's not out to let us down. He's done everything that could possibly have been done to prove his great love for us. And that's good news. Amen? Amen. Okay. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to transition. <clears throat> All right. Father, thank you so much for this night. Thank you for the baptisms we got to celebrate earlier, and thank you that you are just the Lord of love who has laid down your life for those who don't deserve it like us. Um, pray that we would just take this into the center of ourselves and be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.